Back during the Napoleonic Wars in Europe, when Napoleon was, was doing his thing, King Frederick William III was the king in Prussia, which later became part of, of Germany, most of it. And, um, he, because of the wars and the cost of the wars, he found their nation in financial trouble. And here's what he did. He, d- he asked, he invited the people of Prussia especially women, to bring their jewelry of gold and silver and just give it to the nation to be melted down, to be part of the reserves, uh, to buy war stuff. And, and when they did, the, the government would exchange someone's jewelry and they would give them one of a couple things. One, they would give them jewelry made out of iron and there's some real intricate Prussian iron jewelry floating around out there that's, I think, really worth a lot of money now. Kind of beautiful, really. Or they would give someone uh, this metal made out of iron, um, and on the back was inscribed this inscription, I gave gold for iron. And these became a symbol of, I sacrificed for my king. They became so popular that it actually became unpopular to wear real jewelry. Uh, It was a a rousing success because people, everyone wanted to be someone who had sacrificed for their king. Another little side note from history. If you've ever seen a, a German military medal, what's it look like? It's the Iron Cross. That's where these came from. The Iron Cross came from these uh, Prussian medals that were first given in exchange for jewelry. They became later what was given to soldiers um, because this was so popular as a symbol of, again, sacrifice. Well, that story and the story we're going to study together today together in Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12, they remind me of one another because what we're going to study today is the story of sacrifice, personal sacrifice for public good or personal sacrifice for our king. Two things happen in these. This is a long passage and we're not going to read it all, but besides giant lists of names, two things happen in Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. The repopulating of Jerusalem, which will involve great personal sacrifice. And then uh, the dedication of the walls around Jerusalem, which is more ceremonial, kind of like the giving of these, of these medals. And in these two things, the people of Jerusalem are going to come once again at the end of this book, sort of a, we're going to see a model for the Christian life in these ancient Jewish people. Even the order in which they do things here at the end of the book becomes a model for us, can teach us a lot. And and to understand what happens correctly in this passage today, I've got to remind us sort of how we got here and what these walls are doing around Jerusalem in the first place. By this point, chapter 13 is the end of the book. So we'll finish that very soon. 
Nehemiah, we've got we to remember, remind ourselves why the walls are here. Nehemiah moved from the east to Jerusalem to build walls around the city because God wanted walls around the city uh, where his name would dwell. But God didn't want those walls there, didn't want those walls built merely so that the Jews had something to be proud of or merely so that they could feel more safe inside those walls, which they did. God wanted the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt because God had promised to restore Jerusalem and because God has plans for what's left of the people of Israel and his city, Jerusalem. God has promised that he's going to bless the entire world through this remnant of this nation. And he's promised that the Messiah that he will send to do that will one day, past for us, future for them, one day that Messiah will ride into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and people will proclaim him, Hosanna, the son of David. That stuff's got to happen. So the walls being built are like one ingredient in this greater plan that God is cooking up. And so by this point, the walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. And if we, but if we look back into chapter 7, we'll, we'll see that not very many people live there. The walls are around some of Jerusalem, but not very many people live inside those walls. Chapter 7 begins this way. Now, when the wall was rebuilt, so the, the wall got finished in chapter 6, and the beginning of chapter 7, Nehemiah tells us, when the wall was rebuilt, verse 4, the city was large and, and spacious, but the people in it were few. They hadn't rebuilt the houses. This Jerusalem was still a ruin. It had been a ruin for 140-some years when the Babylonians destroyed it. And without walls, there was no sense in rebuilding stuff because it wasn't safe to live there. So in chapter 6, the walls got finished, but there still weren't people living there. And here's one question I want you to be able to answer by the time we leave here today. What took Nehemiah so long? Today, what he's going to do is fill Jerusalem with people and dedicate the walls of Jerusalem, have a dedication service. What took Nehemiah so long? Why? He, chapter 6, the walls were finished. He doesn't move anybody in there until today's passage, chapter 11, chapter 12. All of a sudden, Jerusalem's a safer place to build a house and live. People will move there. Like the walls, literally, if you build it, they will come. Because Nehemiah, or excuse me, Jerusalem's at an important place geographically, always has been. As soon as it was safe to live there and invest there, people will do it because there's economic opportunity of nothing else. So people will gradually move back in to Jerusalem. The question is who? Nehemiah, who do we want living there? Do we want just people who are ambitious and want to make a buck living there? Or do we want Jerusalem, the city that bears God's name? Do we want it inhabited with people who care about God's name, God's plans, God's desires? Nehemiah doesn't want Jerusalem simply filled with people. 
He wants Jerusalem filled with people who care about God's will, God's plans, God's promises. And that's why Nehemiah has waited to, uh, to fill Jerusalem, to repopulate Jerusalem. Because Nehemiah knows when the wall was finished, there just weren't that many people around who knew God's plans. They hadn't been reading the word. They, they didn't know what God desired of them. And so before Nehemiah led people into Jerusalem, he wanted to lead people to God. He wanted there to be revival in the hearts of his, of his people so that the people who move into Jerusalem would be people who cared about God's plans and God's desires. That is so applicable for us. Howard Spring wrote, he was so right when he wrote this. I love this quote. The kingdom of God is not going to advance by our churches becoming filled with people. The kingdom of God is going to advance when the people in our churches become filled with God. And that is so absolutely true. Nehemiah doesn't want simply people in this city again. He wants people in the city to be passionate about the plans and the will of God. So that's what he's going to do today. Now that he has led the people in something of a revival in chapters 7 through 10, today we're going to see Jerusalem be repopulated, and then they're going to have a dedication service to dedicate the walls around the city. Let's read. We're going to skip around a bit. Verses, or chapters 11 and 12... We're just going to read a couple of verses here and then we'll skip a long section I'll tell you about in just a second. Excuse me. Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1 begins like this. Now the leaders of the people lived in or really moved in to Jerusalem. But the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city while nine-tenths of the people remained in the other cities, towns, villages. Verse 2, And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. And beginning in verse 3, we read, Now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem. And that's when we get a really long list of people who moved to Jerusalem, some of the leaders, some regular people, some people. Here's what they did in the temple. And we read a whole bunch of the number of the sons of so-and-so was 356. And the number of the sons of so-and-so was so much. Let's skip down into chapter 12 toward the end for time's sake and go all the way to verse 27 of chapter 12 where we read this. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem... They sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from their fields in Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. Verse 30, the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. And then I had leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs. The first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. 
Skip down to verse 37. At the fountain gate, they went directly up the steps of the city of David by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded to the left while I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of furnaces to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim by the old gate, by the fish gate, the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate and they stopped at the gate of the guard. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God and so did I and half of the officials with me. We'll stop our reading right there. Just briefly, here's what happened at that. Nehemiah brings the people. Um, he splits them in half. Half go this way around the wall. Half go this way around the wall. And there's two huge choirs on both sides of this relatively long, skinny wall. And in that uh, service of dedication, they sing from opposite sides of the wall is what happened. Okay. Two things happened there, the repopulation of Jerusalem, the resettlement of Jerusalem, which I'm going to call tithing people, and then that service of dedication, a dedication service where they dedicate the walls. Now, to tithe something just means to give 10%. A tithe is 10%. Tithing 10%, one-tenth is a, is a number that seems to be important to God's heart for whatever reason. Um, tithing is still a popular sort of amount or target goal for giving here in the, in the church age. Some people think that's because that was the, new, the Old Testament standard and they continue that. It really isn't. Uh, it's true that Israel was commanded to give 10% to the Lord. If you read Deuteronomy 26, they were also commanded to give an additional 10% of the 90% they had left over to support the annual festivals. So that's 19%. And then they still had to bring bulls and goats for sacrifices. That was before they got to things like free will offerings and love offerings. So a faithful Jew would probably be somewhere around 21%, something like that. So if you're interested in the Old Testament standard, there's probably your goal. But these people don't tithe money today. When I say that the repopulating of Jerusalem was tithing people, I don't mean people who tithe money. I mean people is what gets tithed. People tithe themselves in this passage. They tithe their, their adult kids and their grandkids. The way it worked was this. The first two verses of chapter 11 were told that the Jewish leadership, the leaders of the people that lived out in these villages, they understood it's important to God that this city be repopulated. So we're going to lead by example. And a lot of the leaders packed up, left where they were living, and started a new life in Jerusalem. Leaders led by example. That's awesome. But then we're told in the second part of verse 1 that the people cast lots which would be for us like drawing names out of a hat. And every tenth name, if, you, if your name got drawn tenth or first, however you did it, that meant you had to pack up and move away from home where you had been living. And you moved into Jerusalem, probably to build a new house out of the rubble and start a new life there. That's how Jerusalem got repopulated. Luck of the draw 
10% of all of the Jews who lived out in Judea and Galilee and wherever agreed to just pack up and move to town. Now, if we do the math through that passage, I'll tell you the wrong number. There are 3,044 men who move. Just the men are numbered. So that tells us roughly we can be pretty confident but that between 10 and 15,000 people were relocated. Uh, men, women, and children. That was a big deal, like from a bird's eye view in the big picture. But imagine for a second the effect on each individual family. Some of you who have moved away from home know what that means. That means, you know, uprooting from what is familiar to the unfamiliar. It means we're going to have a new neighborhood, a new house. Our kids have to make new friends. Um, a new job. And for these ancient Jews, it was probably a bigger deal even for us. It's not like they had like face chat and book time and whatever the things are on your phone that you can keep in touch with all of your old friends and your family. Right? They didn't have phone calls. Letters, written letters for regular people were, were real rare in this culture in this time. And this was a family-centric society. And not just by choice. That was survival. Almost nobody moved away more than about a decent walk from, from mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles and cousins. And they were probably all part of the same business, same farm, same land. It happened, don't get me wrong, Nehemiah did it. But not very many people ever moved very far away. And all at once, 10% of the people agree to do this. Because they've seen what God is doing. God still has a plan for this nation and this people. And they all decide, I'm going to put his plans ahead of my plans. Instead of me considering where I want to live, where I want my kids to live, where I want my grandbabies at. I'm going to say, God, I'm going to, I'm going to leave that up to you. Because the best thing and the safest thing I can do with my life is, is give it to you. This, this repopulation of Jerusalem looks so much like one verse in the New Testament uh, that I just thought I'd share it with you. Romans 12.1 is acted out 500 and some years before Paul ever wrote it. Let me explain what I mean. Romans 12.1 reads like this. Therefore, I exert you, he says, brethren, which is not gender specific in, in his Greek. So brothers and sisters, all y'all, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice or a sacrifice that is alive, holy, and pleasing to God. And this is your reasonable act of service. That's the major therefore in the book of Romans. And here's what I mean by that. Paul has just spent 11 chapters explaining, sort of legally, 
how sinful lunks like us get to be forgiven and saved and declared not guilty by a holy God. That's Romans chapter 1 through 11. We are all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we get to be justified by a holy God. He explains that for 11 chapters. And then Paul says, Therefore, because of all that great mercy of God, here's the reasonable thing we should do as Christians. Present our bodies. Present every bit of us as if it's a sacrifice to God. I give God my life so that you can do what you want with my life. And Paul says that's what's reasonable given what God has done for us. That's what these ancient Jews did in just a very real way. I am sure many of them, as they were drawing names out of the hat, casting lots, which is more like dice than drawing names out of the hat, but you get, you get the idea. As the, I'm sure many of them were like, oh man, I hope, I would just, I would much rather stay here. Right? Uh, older uh, parents with adult children, when their kids, all right, we're going to draw now for you. They, I'm sure they were all white knuckling it thinking, oh, please, God, not my kids. But whoever got drawn said they were, it says they volunteered to go. That's not volunteering. (laughs) It just means they, they went with glad hearts like this is God's plan. And there's no, there's no place I want to be than where God wants me to be. There's no place I want my kids than where God wants my kids. There's no place I want my grandbabies to grow up except where God wants my grandbabies to grow up. Even if that means, in that ancient society, I may, I, I may lose contact with them for any real practical purpose. It's just very admirable to me. And then Nehemiah writes out the long list of people um, who, were, who were drawn by that luck of the draw. And we didn't read those names, but even in that long list, we can learn a couple of really valuable things. Here's what we learned from that list. First, even though that's an anonymous list to us, just reading through the names makes hit home to me. Like, these are real people. This just reads like a story to us. This was not a story to them. It was the only life they had. And second, we might skip over this and the names mean nothing to us, but, but God noticed every single one of them. God notices every single act of obedience anyone ever does to his glory and the good of someone else. Author of the book of Hebrews wrote it this way, God is not so unjust, unfair, as to forget your work and the love you have demonstrated for his name when you serve and continue to serve the saints. God notices 
every single time. So here's, that's how Jerusalem gets repopulated. These people have to say what, what Matt Chandler likes to call a gospel goodbye. I mean, I, I can't, can you imagine how many tears when, when 12,000 people at the same time move away from home to start a new life in Jerusalem? But it's, a, but it's a goodbye that is sad for a good reason. And what a force for good. Think about this. 12,000 approximately people so dedicated to God's will and God's promises that they are willing to do what they are doing, moving at the same time into one place. What a force for good. And as I, as I study that, we, if I asked you when you walked in here this morning, hey, do you want this place, do you want our church to be a force for good here in Chase County where God has put us? You would all say yes. Are we willing to live like that, though? Or say, God, what is it that you want with my life? And then, Finally, in what sort of should be the, the climactic scene of the book, but it's not. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 13. It should be the ending, really. After all the stuff we've studied since chapter 6, when the wall was finished, Nehemiah is finally ready to dedicate the walls of Jerusalem. Can you answer this question now? What took him so long? Why didn't Nehemiah have the dedication service for the walls right after he built it? Because he knew it. What's going to do more for the, for the causes of the Lord? Dedicated people or dedicated bricks? Nehemiah knew if we don't have people living inside these walls that are dedicated to the Lord, their own lives, we can pray about the bricks all we want. The bricks are going to do their job, but the people have to do theirs. Nehemiah also knows his history. Nehemiah knows there used to be way more people than this who lived in Jerusalem. What happened to them? They got drug into exile. Why? Because they weren't dedicated to the Lord. That was, their, that was Israel's problem all along. So he leads them to the Lord first. And now that the people are on board, now that the people moving into Jerusalem are so dedicated that they're willing to uproot their old life and start a new life just because God said so, now it's good that he has basically a big church service to dedicate this new structure, the walls. And what he does is he starts in the, the places, the fish gate and the refuse gate and the this gate and the that gate and the star gate and the whatever gate and the fence gate and all those things that don't mean anything to us just means he spreads people out with these huge choirs all the way around these walls. And then on some sort of signal, they sing at the same time. And the, the, the thing we read about the most, there's, singing is the main thing they do to dedicate these walls. Now, why do that? Why do we do that? Every time we start a service here, we start by singing. You ever wonder why we do that? If you think about it, it's kind of weird. It's kind of strange. My guess is you don't do this anywhere else in your life where you get people together and before you really start, you sing some songs together. Right? Is anybody, anybody 
do that. Like you, uh, you're going to have some people over to play cards, right? And you get out and they're like, well, before I shuffle the cards, let's all sing faithfully by journey. Okay, let's get highway run. Mm. Right? Nobody does that. Right? I mean, you have to sing songs other people know. Right? If you... Uh, Gonna have the Huskers are gonna start playing football here in a couple months. You get people over. You're gonna have a sing along. Get there early because we're gonna sing through like Billy Joel's Greatest Hits Volume One before kickoff, and nobody thinks anything of it, right? No, we don't. Do, why? So why do we do it here when it would be strange anywhere else except for here? Just quickly, sermon within a sermon here. I thought I'd tell you, share with you just a few things about why we sing when we get here. First, singing to God just matches the desires of God's heart for us. Did you know there are over 450 references to singing to God in the Bible? 450. We're told to sing to God. We are obedient when we sing to God. And if we get together without singing, usually we're disobedient because we're told to do it. Fortunately for many of us, we're not told to be good at it. We're just told to do it. The psalmist says a couple different places, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And if noise is all you can come up with, then noise is what the Lord wants. Maybe in your resurrected body someday, You'll, you know, you'll be a better singer. I don't know. But I know right now, God wants us to sing to him. Another reason we sing when we get together is, you all know this from school, you can remember stuff when you sing it better than if you just read it. Right? When stuff rhymes and there's a tune to it, you remember it better. Singing is a great way to help us remember biblical truth. If we sing Biblical songs, songs with true lyrics, they tend to stay with us more. That, that songs help us meditate on truth. That's why I would just encourage you to make some Christian music a part of your weekly life somehow. Whether it's the K-Love app on your phone or the MyBridge radio thing or the North Platte radio station, Find some, some, bibli- some music with biblical lyrics and listen to it. It helps keep the truth centered in your heart. And I am not going to be the, the, the preacher ever who goes on the tirade against rock and or roll or anything like that, right? And try to, you know, have a drive to get rid of popular music, you know, the rock and the rap music. And if I did, I want you to know your country music would have to go just as quickly as that other stuff. Don't stand up and leave. That would be rude. But you know it's true. Listen, I would, I'm not going to, I'm not on a tirade against pop culture. I would just encourage you to get some biblical music into your life because it helps. It sticks. Third, why we sing here. Singing is one of the few ways that a group of people can be in unity can do at the same time, can have the same words, theology, emotion, all just at the same 
time. And it gives us an opportunity to really do on earth what's going on in heaven. If you think about that, we, don't, we probably don't have a lot of opportunities to do that. But like Jesus played, prayed, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know there is music going on in heaven that glorifies the Lord. And singing together is, is one way where we can do that. Down here already. And man, did they ever sing that day. We are told in verse 43 that the sound of their singing could be heard from a long ways away. You know, God had done this work. God deserved the credit. God deserved the praise. And they gave it to him. And then, and we'll see this more next in chapter 13, but I want you to know that this dedication of this wall was not the end of something. If it was the end of something, he would have done it as soon as the project was done. This is the beginning of something. This is the beginning of a new life for Jerusalem. That's why he waits till there are people dedicated to the Lord before he dedicates the walls to the Lord. This isn't a finish line. It's a beginning. And on that note, we're going to do something a little different today. Our, uh, we just got done, or mostly done, building a... We didn't even do it. We didn't even build it. I didn't build a thing. But there's a building, you may have noticed, right next door. And we're a little early because, you know, the whole thing's not finished and it's not joined to the, to the church yet. But here's what I thought we would do. We would do what these people uh, did. This morning, um, you know, as you are able, if you'll leave out here and go out this door, uh, there's going to be some guys that are going to hand you a song sheet. It's How Great Thou Art. Uh, And we're going to go into that building. Just spread out like these people did. Don't stand on top of the walls, though. That's dangerous. Okay? Their, their walls were nine feet thick. Ours are only about like this, okay? Um, one thing, you know, the fire suppression system we had to put in that thing, the only thing I hope we ever use from that is there's a little intercom system through that, so I'll be able to communicate with you no matter where you go in the building over there. I would say uh, if, uh, let's see, somebody want to go up in the cubby's room? You guys want Because we're going to pray and dedicate this building to the Lord. You guys want to, do you want to go up into the cubby's room? Just watch that door up there. Make sure there are, I put the baby gate across the, there's a fire exit with no fire exit right now. If you open that door, it's a long ways down. That first step is a doozy in the, right now in the uh, cubby's room. That's why we've got a little sign that says, please keep out. Uh, Cause it's not terribly safe at this point, but there is a gate across that. So tollers, if you want to go up there and pray in that, and we're just going to go up there. I'll be on the intercom. We're going to pray for a little bit that the Lord would, that we would be dedicated to the Lord's work. And then that the Lord, we're just going to dedicate that building to him. And then we will sing How Great Thou Art together, just a cappella and in unison. Does that make sense? I'll be breaker, breaker, good buddy on the intercom in just a moment. You have people to hand out. All right. If then just go there. There's classrooms. You should be able to be, to hear me anywhere if you want to go. So head on over and we will dismiss from there in just a minute.